here with Akshay and Reed of Pattern Research. Hey guys, how's it going? Hey Greg, good. Hey. Awesome. So something that's pretty interesting to listeners who might not know of us, but we're all DRW alumni. Reed and I actually spent some time in the options training class together way back in the day. So maybe you guys can just touch on briefly your backgrounds, kind of what you guys did at DRW and, and your journey from there to call it crypto today. Yeah, sure. Um, so I started at DRW in 2013 on the um, energy desk trading uh, WTI and Brent crude options in Chicago. Um, I did that for like a year and a half or so and then moved on to metals. Um, and I traded metals out of Chicago for a bit and then also out of New York. Um, and I left DRW in 2017. Cool. What about you, Reed? Yeah, so I started in 2015. Um, started off in the metals desk, um, trading options mostly. Um, then moved over to a hybrid between metals and FX. Uh, after four years in Chicago, I moved out to London. Uh, in London, I was in more of a discretionary risk-taking seat, um, but kind of the same sample set of products. Cool. Interesting. So maybe we could just touch on a few things there because I know you know people from the options trading backgrounds might find some interesting conversation here. So Akshay, you mentioned that you were trading crude and Brent. I remember when Reed and I were back in the class, uh, our instructor was telling us a story about Brent vol and, and crude vol being mispriced against each other. Did you guys trade like relative vol between those two products or what was kind of the typical strategy you guys would look at? Yeah. So, I mean, we were very much like an electronic um, market making desk. So we were trading WTI and Brent um, and WTI primarily traded on the NYMEX and um, Brent uh, on ICE. And also Brent would generally trade overnight as it was like more of a UK product. Um, so, yeah, we would often see like ball discrepancies between the two as well as sort of like settlement discrepancies. And so we'd trade those spreads pretty frequently. Cool. And I guess for people who don't know, WTI is sort of like the, the U.S. crude and then Brent as the European version. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Awesome. And then you guys both traded on the metals desk. So what was that like? Um, I know, Reed, you mentioned you, you did some discretionary trading as as well as market making. What what were some of the things that you guys would look at there? Would it be like silver vol and gold vol and some, some relationships there? Or was it really strictly in one product? How did that look? Yeah. Um, I mean, I think when we were on the desk together, it was very much like a broad market making desk. We were trading everything from like gold and silver on the COMEX to like GLD and SLV ETFs. Um, we were trading options. We trade obviously Delta one as well. Um, and we had a presence like on screen, like call around broker market as well as having a floor trader. Yeah. Back when those are still a floor. Yeah, exactly. RIP. <laughs> yeah. Um, and yeah, in terms of like how it kind of expanded um, in the later years, um, we moved into a lot of like uh, cross product ball spreads. So obviously gold and silver have a pretty high correlation. So trading, you know, ball spreads between the two, trading uh, skew, trading term structure between the two um, set up like for a lot of interesting like discretionary ball opportunities as well. Interesting. And then Reed, you mentioned you also went to the FX desk. What kind of stuff were you looking at on that desk? Uh, mostly G10, but did dabbling, did some dabbling in uh, EMFX options, which was fun. That was mainly on the discretionary side, um, but yeah, had kind of a background in all of those. With uh, OTCFX options, those can have any expiration date you want, so it opens up for a lot of you know specifics around event vol pricing, 
um, you know, calendar spreads, things like that. Um, yeah, it's, it's pretty similar actually in the crypto space with, uh, we have like one and two, two day options. So there's a pretty similar setup there, I would say. Yeah, that, that's interesting. And actually, a lot of people will think of crypto as some people call it commodity, some people call it a gold alternative, and some people call it an FX alternative. So you guys kind of got all bases covered in your background for yeah, all the angles. Yeah, that's what originally got me quite interested is, and I think it's pretty analogous to talk about like gold and silver versus Bitcoin and ETH. Um, you know, gold and Bitcoin are kind of more of like the gold standard of their asset classes they're a more stable store of wealth while you've got silver being the more speculative but also has like fundamental use cases Mm -hmm. so in that sense they're pretty similar and also in terms of like the ball term structure and the different ball levels and skew levels um they trade in terms of price and ball levels pretty similarly as well that's really interesting so with that experience under your belt how do you guys decide to go into crypto kind of Briefly on my background, I know a lot of DRW people went into crypto. Was this a DRW inspired move or did you come to this conclusion on your own? Uh, I mean, for me, like I was always tangentially aware of crypto. And I think that like, you know, I had friends on Cumberland that bought me Litecoin in like 2014 or something like that. Um, But yeah, I mean, I, I left in 2017 and just kind of like stumbled into crypto in my PA. I had started trading around a bit. Um, and, you know, I remember like Googling Bitcoin options at one point to see if there were options to trade, obviously, um, and kind of stumbled on Deribit and, you know, realized it was a like a young marketplace and just began, you know, playing around and trading there sort of like on the weekends in my spare time. Um, and yeah, I, I sort of like built out systems to trade and, you know, really ended up doing that for like a couple of years and kind of focusing on the derivative options market. I mean, it was very cool to watch that grow from BTC to ETH um, and also just from being an incredibly immature marketplace to where it is now. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. What about yourself, Reed? Yeah, so my uh, activity picked up a little bit later. So 2020 is kind of when I started to get much more involved. Um, what interested me originally was kind of like the gold versus BTC argument. Mm-hmm. Um, and then uh, as I started trading some stuff, seeing kind of how the uh, basis opportunities were there, um, as well as just a lot of outright directional opportunities, uh, made it a really interesting market. And any market that's new and evolving generally presents a lot of opportunities that if you have the traditional finance background, you can really leverage. Yeah, absolutely. I could see that. So jumping into pattern research. So this is the firm. Are you, did you guys co-found this? When did you guys found it? And uh, like, what is kind of the premise of pattern research and what do you guys provide as services? Yeah, sure. So um, I started pattern in like early 2020. Um, I mean, broadly speaking, we're a crypto fund. I would say that like primarily we specialize in algo market making of crypto derivatives. Um, so, you know, we're trading options, futures, spot, um, across centralized venues as well as decentralized. Um, we've been you know, actively making on-chain for like a little over a year now. And yeah, out, outside of that, we, we do a bit of DeFi as well as, you know, as, as most people do. We've got a DeFi book kind of farming across a bunch of different chains. And yeah, I mean, largely just looking for opportunities in the crypto space and you know, trying to like contribute to efficient markets. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Actually, I see on your website, you guys have Zeta here, you got DopeX. 
Uh, you got mm-hmm. Sega. Are these uh, some of the DeFi markets that you're providing market making services on? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Very cool. And then do you guys do discretionary trading as well, or is it purely market making? Yeah, for sure. I mean, you know, I think in this market, it's like both inefficient and illiquid enough. I mean, it's very hard to be purely market neutral, right? I mean, you have to have a view and you have to have a kind of like take on the market, whether that's fall, spot, um, whatever. So yeah, we certainly, we certainly trade discretionarily also. And is this a fund where you have LPs or is it sort of a self-funded fund that you guys put to, put your money together and, and are basically managing your own money? We've got a couple primary backers, but really no outside LPs. Cool. And then on the CFI side, are you guys making markets on Bybit, Darebit, Delta Exchange, sort of across the board? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So on the CFI like ball side, we're making markets in basically all of the kind of usual suspect um, exchanges. The only one we're not we're not active on Delta yet, but um, we're, we're working on that. Cool. That's awesome. And then what about the TradFi side? So to me, this is a market that has a lot of potential behind it, but it's kind of been slow to pick up. Is this a market mm-hmm. that you guys are, are market making behind or are you waiting for sort of more liquidity or is it just harder to get the infrastructure set up? What's kind of the holdup on call it CME, Bitcoin options and Beto yeah. options and stuff like that? Yeah, I mean, so specifically CME, I mean, we've had we've had like a clearing relationship for a while to trade there. Um, we just haven't really invested the time to build that connectivity out. I mean, I think one of the major hangups there for us as a sort of crypto native firm, right, is that like the tech infrastructure of the CME looks so vastly different than that of like a Deribit, a Bybit, a Binance, whatever, right? And so, you know, the way that our systems are set up, like it it would be a bit of a, I mean, it it would be a, a bit of work to kind of like generalize that connectivity to the CME. Um, and so I think that's something that like, you know, pending volume, we've always had it in mind, but it's just the volume has never really been there to justify the like integration lift. Yeah. Yeah, And kind of that, um, you also get into a lot of the, you know, cross risk margining issues, um, which is something that applies to pretty much all areas of, of crypto at the moment. Still, um, having risk on, you know, one centralized exchange versus the CME and how do you offset those margins? That's where like capital efficiency can really take a hit. Uh, mm-hmm. So you need to have pretty significant opportunities to want to uh, have to kind of carry, you know, some of those offsetting risks. Yeah, that makes sense. And in a TradFi space, like the, the margin requirements are so much higher as well. That's almost like a lot less attractive than CFI yeah. space and, and even DeFi space in, in certain respects. Mm-hmm. I know from a data side, we've, we have sort of a similar kind of dilemma where the infrastructure is a lot different. The licensing for the TradFi data is a lot more cumbersome. And then lastly, like building a business around CME data has been done by everyone else. Whereas mm-hmm. where like CFI and DeFi data is that is like the cutting edge field. So I imagine on the market making side, it's the same thing. Mm-hmm. Like DRW is probably not market making in DeFi. I mean, maybe DRW is, but the traditional market makers are probably doing stuff mm-hmm. in TradFi, but not in the DeFi, CFI space. Is that kind of the same would you agree with that or disagree with that? Yeah, I think so. I mean, there's certainly some overlap, I think, on the CME between, like, call it dare participants and CME participants. Um, but to your point about, like, Beto and, like, if you want to talk about, like, 
um, grayscale or any of that stuff. I mean, the guys making markets there are, are, you know, that 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 is a different set of market makers, I think, than what you see on like sort of the traditional crypto exchanges. Um, and yeah, it's for all the reasons you mentioned. I mean, it's like largely infrastructural and it's just kind of like a lot of us built from the ground up with respect to crypto. And so making that leap is different than building from the ground up for CME and then coming over here. Yeah. Cool. So maybe we could just jump into details of without leaking alpha or anything like that, but jump into details of crypto vol and where you see vol right now. Something to me that stands out, it seems pretty interesting is where equity vol is today versus where crypto vol is today compared to say a year ago. So crypto vol mm-hmm. for context to listeners, crypto vol is about 2x the VIX measured by the DVOL. Bitcoin VIX versus SP500 VIX is about 2x. This time last year is about 5x. What do you guys make of that? This kind of this this lull in crypto vol and and where do you guys kind of see things going? Yeah, I mean, our kind of thesis was after the merge that it would be definitely some ball compression, but uh, the relationship to TradFi is probably the most surprising aspect. You look like the beta of crypto to, you know, traditional assets like the S&P to NASDAQ, which is more like the tech heavy side. Um, that's gone down massively. Um, so usually when you see it like a down 4% day in, in the NASDAQ, crypto would be down 8 10%. Uh, in a sense, it's good that crypto is not going down 8 to 10% when the NASDAQ goes down 3 or 4%. But we're also not seeing that same reflexivity on the top side as well. Um, so that's definitely one of the more interesting dynamic shifts we've seen in probably the last three weeks or so. Yeah, I mean, I would say that the general progression of like crypto vol with respect to like equity vol, it makes sense, right, in terms of like the maturation of a, mm-hmm. um, um, a product, right? Like. I mean, in in many ways, like the market participants today in crypto versus the market participants a year ago in crypto are wildly different, but inequities are presumably roughly unchanged, right? Um, so I think like that also speaks to this compression, right? I mean, you've got so many more professional market makers in the space today, just sort of off the back of 2020 and 2021, like volatility and spread, right? Like them seeing that. Um, and I think driven by the sell-off and general spot prices, but you've got a mass exodus of retail, right? So it's like more market makers, less retail equals lower vol, right? Yeah, that makes sense. And and your thesis of like a, a secular downward trend in crypto vol as it matures, the market gaps market caps get bigger, stuff like that, mm-hmm. should it should reduce vol. And if you look at all coins that have small market caps, those are all over the place. Now, as a sector, you think, or what you were just saying is that like the downturn maybe shook out a lot of retail traders, and maybe that's part of the reason that the vol went down. Now, do you think mm-hmm. that that's just kind of a cyclical thing, like that just happened because of the, the latest sell-off, or do you think that um, crypto is actually becoming more of an institutionally uh, driven market? Yeah, that's an interesting one, because while the retail hands have been shaken out, and a lot of people have been hurt quite badly. Um, we have seen a lot of like larger institutional players come into the space, especially in options. Um, people like the options volume over the past uh, two or three months, there's been a huge increase in option trading volume um, driven by like a handful of very large players. So you are seeing a lot more traditional uh, funds getting into the space uh, in both like the directional options um Yeah, I mean, I think I would say as much as I hope it to be the case, I also think it to be the case that it is cyclical, right? And I mean, like like to Reed's point, right, this this big influx of 
traditional firms and institutions, right? That that speaks to like, you know, their expectation that retail volume and regular volume will return to the market, right? I mean, yeah, retail got burned by the sell-off. They, you know, just broadly speaking with kind of like equities coming down, COVID ending to, to an extent, right? It's like you, you've just got this whole kind of like retail trading frenzy that's like sort of tapered off. But yeah, I think it comes back. And I think that what you're seeing is just a lot of institutions entering the space to, you know, position themselves for that re-entrance. Yeah, that makes sense. And what about the sort of the difference between CFI versus DeFi? I'm always sort of under the assumption that DeFi is a lot more driven by sort of like retail crypto natives, whereas the CFI will have a healthier mix of institutions and, and retail. Is that something you would agree with? And do you see any sort of divergence when you're market making on, say, Zeta versus Deribit? Yeah. Um yeah, that's a good question. I think that a lot of institutions are still wary to touch DeFi for like unknown KYC AML reasons, right? Like you don't really know who you're trading against. Um, so I think that definitely keeps a lot of like the traditional players out of there. Although I'll say that, you know, there are firms that don't have outside capital or, or jurisdiction elsewhere that perhaps have a higher risk tolerance for that kind of stuff. Um, but yeah, I mean, certainly the centralized exchanges are dominated or, or, or rather, you know, you know, you see a lot more institutions on centralized exchanges than you do on DeFi. Um, I think that as more sort of professional protocols come to market and you have less of these kind of fly-by-night, um, so to speak, Ponzi's, right? Um, you, you know, you're, you're, seeing, you're seeing DEX protocols that, you know, may perhaps require KYC and things like that. And I think that, like, that, I think that, that path of maturity will, will bring institutions there. Yeah, yeah in a sense, regulation there is probably a good thing. It'll make people more comfortable putting their money into some of these mm-hmm. new projects and protocols for sure. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Have you guys uh, looked at different DeFi option protocols that run on, say, AMM models as opposed to like order book models? I th- I'm thinking of Lyra specifically. This is a pretty mm-hmm. like fascinating, cutting edge AMM for options that we haven't seen yep. done in the space yet. Have you looked at Lyra specifically and have you looked at AMMs versus order book style? And yeah. Do, and do you have any thoughts um, there? Yeah. I mean, I think that AMMs in options are a hard problem to solve, right? I mean, it it's a hard enough problem to solve in linear products and like, you know, whether that problem is solved is up for debate, right? Um, we are actually involved with a, with a, um, a project called Arrow. Um on air markets on avalanche and they are building out a um an amm so you know i'd suggest checking them out um but yeah it's not easy right i mean basically what you're trying to do is kind of democratize like that risk taking or liquidity provision and like options are such a multi-dimensional and like i think sophisticated problem that doing it in a way that's like computationally um affordable on chain is really it's really tough right and so um, yeah, I, I've looked at I've looked at these some of those kind of protocols, and I think that like that that problem is still to be solved, but we'll see. Yeah, fascinating. So you guys mentioned that you got started in 2020. So we've seen a lot of let's say different environments in Bitcoin and ETH fall surfaces. Maybe we could touch a little bit on that. Some of the popular trades that stick out in my mind are the cash and carry trade, which we saw a lot of. We also saw a huge shift in skew. So in 2020, 2021, we saw call side bias to the, to the vol surface. 
And now it's mm-hmm. clearly put side bias, which resembles a lot more traditional risk assets. What do you guys make of that? Do you think the, the vol surface has been figured out yet? Do you think that the the shape has found a, a true kind of sticky point? Or do you think it's still up for grabs and people are still figuring it out? I think the shape is still pretty up for grabs in terms of how the market's pricing it. Um, I think that a lot of good trading opportunities on the vol side come from that. Uh, it has definitely gotten a bit more like efficient, I would say, as the last six months, I would say, is probably one of the bigger areas. Um, but, you know, we're still seeing a lot of uh, areas where there's large option flow that can really cause some interesting kinks in the curve. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, another area that's very interesting in the crypto space is pricing eventful um, and pricing the forward vol for, for different catalysts. Um, and kind of what we're seeing right now is the market's really pricing in minimal catalysts for crypto over the next several months. Um, but, you know, looking into 2023, there's still been a fair bit of, you know, option demand, um, particularly on the top side. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, I think that those are, those are all great points. I mean, certainly like uh, in 2020 and 21, I think that you saw a lot more of like spot bias driving the surface than like ball bias, let's say. Right. But like as the market has matured, you know, people have come in and said, okay, well, you, you know, there might be a spot bias to buy calls, but from a vol perspective, it doesn't make sense, right? And smack them back down. Um, so I definitely think in that respect, like the market trades a lot less um, directionally, which, you know, I think the same could be said for basis as well. Yeah, so that's a good point. Let me just recap that for people who might be new to options. So when you say that there's a spot bias, it's someone who I just want to get long exposure. So I'm just buying mm-hmm. calls. But in fall terms, I'm definitely overpaying for calls and I could structure a trade that sells the call, buys the underlying a lot more intelligently from a vol space. So you're saying that you think that that spot bias trading where people will just blindly overpay for futures, blindly overpay for calls is kind of diminishing uh, maybe, maybe secondly yeah, I mean, or sec- secondly? I mean, and if... I mean, I guess if if the people driving it aren't diminishing, then certainly the people knocking it back in line are increasing, right? Like, I think that, you know, I mean, it's it's probably a bit of both, but yeah. That makes a lot of sense. Now, on Mm -hmm. the topic of tail risk, so what kind of tail risk do you guys think lives out there in the crypto space? I always think of, like, the potential for some central bank to just buy, like, $500 billion in a clip and not care what price they pay. But what kind of tail risk do you guys... keep you up at night in terms of crypto wall? I'd say the downside is probably still one of the bigger risks. I say that risk is quite a bit less now than it was before as so much of this excess uh, risk has been flushed out of the market. Um, you can see by like the open interest levels that there's definitely way less leveraged money in the game. Mm. Um, and as less leveraged money gets into the game, that downside risk becomes a little bit smaller. But I think we saw a lot of the larger capitulations i think some of the bigger tail risks right now would just be uh coming in on the downside from like the financial system mm-hmm. um i still think those are relatively small but uh there are a lot of you know you've seen incredibly high vol record high vol in rates you're seeing record high vol in equities so other markets are very very concerned about the downside it is a little bit surprising that crypto doesn't seem as concerned now about the downside as it used to be yeah um, yeah, I, I agree with that completely. I mean, I think it's like the downside tail risks are the ones that keep me up at night, not so much a foreign <laughs> Fed buying billions of dollars worth. But um, yeah, I like, yeah, I mean, basically exactly reads points, right? Which is just the like regulation um, and these sort of like 
unknowns around that, both as it relates to like centralized exchanges as well as like on chain, um, to me is like one of one of the bigger tail risks. I mean, yeah, we we flushed a lot of leverage out of the system, I think, in the last nine months, and we saw the fallout of that. Um, but there's yeah, there, there there's still just the kind of unknown as to how all the various governments, and particularly the U.S. government, are going to treat this stuff. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. One of the other big questions in, in crypto that's been a big driver in a lot of ways is interest rates. So that's borrow rates, leverage long rates, stuff like that. Um, something that seems interesting to me now, now that future that Ethereum is moving to proof of stake, the long dated futures, in my mind, should probably be at a discount to spot, not a premium to spot. So do you guys look at rates at all? Do you think there's any opportunities there? Uh, and have you guys like seen big changes in the rate space? Yeah, um, I mean, so certainly the ETH basis has sold off. I mean, it, it, it sold off into the merge kind of on like ETH proof of work, airdrop speculation value, right? Um, and it bounced off of those lows, but it's, yeah, it's trading like it's trading negative right now. And I think a lot of that is just this kind of conflict, like this, this concept of locked up or staked ETH that's going to come due in six to nine months, right? Um, so yeah, I think that's a fair point. I mean, you know, something that's interesting, right? And perhaps what drove a lot of the 2020 and 2021 mania, right? Is like what were global rates at that time and what were crypto rates, right? Global rates were basically zero and crypto rates were 10% or, or, or more, right? Um, but now you're seeing that like sort of like those two things converge, right? Like the risk-free rate, you know, in the US is now like call it 4%. Um, and in crypto, I think that if you're looking at DeFi or you're looking at basis, cash and carry, any of that kind of stuff, I mean, you're struggling to get mid-single digits, right? And so um, I do think that that kind of like trade-off of reward, but like mismatch and risk is 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 interesting and is a large driver of like the activity or lack of activity we're seeing. Yeah, definitely. You see yields driving nearly every market everywhere, but uh, particularly in crypto where, yeah, you're seeing like all these DeFi yields at, at very low levels. So until the risk adjusted return of that starts to get back to something a bit more reasonable. So that has two folds, like one, meaningful yields picking back up in crypto and two, better risk mitigation by like protocols, bridge risk, things like that. Mm. Um, so risk adjusted yield is probably the, the biggest part of that. Yeah, that's a good point. If you asked me two years ago what would come down or what would happen for the convergence if crypto rates would come down or regular risk-free rates would go up, I would have said crypto <laughs> rates coming down. But yeah, it's a great point. We've kind of had the convergence yeah. driven a lot by the risk-free side and TradFi rates going up. Um, mm -hmm. Very interesting. So, Reed, with your FX background and, and Akshay, feel free to uh, jump in here as well. What do you guys think about sort of options trading on a currency to currency basis. So instead of like Bitcoin versus dollar, we're going to talk about ETH and Bitcoin terms and then do an ETH and Bitcoin terms volatility surface. I mean, to me, there seems like there's a lot of opportunity there. I'm still a big believer in the flipping where ETH market cap exceeds Bitcoin market cap. And I think we're seeing that in the option open interest already. What do you guys make of sort of those type of cross currency uh, trades and, and vol stuff? Yeah, I mean, ETH calls are definitely pricing quite a bit higher than BTC. So you are seeing that um, more convexity on the upside for ETH. Part of that is um, still the market cap differential between the two. 
but also just kind of like the growth potential um, for ETH there. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, like, I think, I think it's an interesting idea. I guess you've had like the Quanto perps on, um, on BitMEX for a while. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, yeah, I, like, I think all of these sort of like second order derivatives or whatever are, they're interesting. And I think people like us find them interesting, but you need to find people to trade them. Right. And so that's always my first kind of hesitancy there is like, it's either going to be institutions matching up with institutions, but in that case, like you need a kind of healthy um, maker taker market, or you have to somehow convince retail to trade these like incredibly complex things, which perhaps they will at first, but after a little while, they might realize they don't really understand them. So, yeah, I mean, I think it's fascinating. I think that it's just a matter of finding the right, you know, the right group of people to, to actually take that risk. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So kind of wrapping up here, you know, you guys have extensive ball trading backgrounds. If someone's new to trading, what are some books that you would recommend that maybe had a big impact in your trading career? And what's maybe a lesson that you would give to a younger trader who's just kind of getting into the crypto or forget crypto into the vol space in general. Well, Nadenberg's probably the classic one that we're all yeah. born and bred on, you know, Nadenberg. <laughs> um, uh, in terms of books, uh, that's a bit trickier. There's a lot of books that are overly uh, technical and like an academic sense. Um, it's hard to find ones that really fit the more like practical and applied sense. I think there's a fair amount of like decent resources online. that are good to do some reading on. Um, but, I mean, having worked at like a larger, you know, institution doing this, you naturally learn most of what you learn from, you know, being around, you know, intelligent coworkers who have been doing this for years. And also, like, learning risk management is probably one of the biggest parts of the game as well. Um, so that's something that kind of takes hands-on experience, good mentorship. Uh, so for new traders, um, starting out, um, if you're at a firm, then, you know, good mentor is obviously a good thing. If you're not at a firm... Um, slightly trickier, um, especially with the complexity of, you know, managing an options book or managing options positions. Um, yeah, I mean, I would say like, I guess, you know, in the ethos of crypto, right. There's a lot of resources on Twitter now that weren't there maybe four or five years ago. I mean, yeah, you're not going to like, you're not necessarily going to find a Twitter thread that talks about like the, you know, how to price of our swap. Right. Um, actually there is, there is, I did come across a Twitter thread on that, but, um, (laughs) Like, you know, I think that there's a lot of people who are out there and kind of willing to talk about what they're looking at and what they're thinking about in a way that didn't used to exist, perhaps just because there wasn't a forum for it. Um, So, yeah, I'd say anyone who's kind of trading independently and getting into the space. I mean, I'd say the same to someone just looking to participate in DeFi or to like, you know, code solidity, right, is like get on Twitter and start talking to people. And like there, there, there is a home for that stuff, right? Cool. Yeah. And I'd say like more of the, you know, if you're trying to trade any discretionary basis, probably one of the most important things is to have like a process and have a, a consistent approach that you can stick to. Uh, anytime you get into a place where you are, you know, taking financial advice from people on Twitter mm-hmm. on what to long and what to short, that can be a bit dicey, but like doing your own research and having your own process built out that you can replicate over time is probably the most important and overlooked. Mm-hmm. Um, so that, and, you know, just a good risk framework and planning everything out, well before you do it so you don't have to try to react on the spot to things you're you're prepared that makes a lot of sense and then last question here i mean when you guys are not market making and running pattern research what do you guys do for fun outside of work (laughs) 
I got an IM soccer game this evening. <laughs> nice. <laughs> That's a, a very expansive question. Um, <laughs> uh, do a fair bit of sports, tennis, boxing. Very cool. Well, guys, thank you so much for coming on a podcast. Everyone who tuned in, thanks again, and we'll catch you next time. Yeah, thanks, Greg. See you.